welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. A big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. All right, here we go. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here with Brett Shell, CEO of Cold Bore Technologies and John Eden, VP of Sales of Surface Americas at Technip FMC. Gents, welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this lovely day? Doing good. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Awesome. Good, good. Well, everything's going well in my end. It's another beautiful day here at the home office. Houston, Texas, the weather here over the last few days has been phenomenal. Brett, where are you joining us from today? I'm in Calgary, Alberta. So it's funny. I just looked at a map. I saw a post that our temperature was like close to yours yesterday too. So we're like 28 above here, which yeah. is really close. Cool. Yeah. A four hour flight and only a few degrees difference, which normally we're quite a bit warmer than Calgary, but uh, this time of year, I mean, especially you just never know with Calgary, you could be, you could be, have the Chinook come in and be outside with shorts and a t-shirt. And then the next day you got snow on the ground. <laughs> yeah. Looking forward to that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Well, hey, before we get going, I just want to take a quick break. And I really actually want to highlight some fascinating technologies provided by our sponsor, Technip FMC. Their Technics Energy's business sees a very promising area for energy transition and the carbon-free energy solutions that replace conventional processes that produce CO2. In this field, Technip FMC is expanding their portfolio of technologies and processes to carbon-free energy chains, such as green hydrogen produced from renewable energy. To learn more, click the link in the show notes. You know, it's really too bad we couldn't do this in person because I always enjoy getting together with the fellas and especially another fellow Canadian. And you're obviously up there in Calgary. Have you been able to travel much at all, Brett? Or are you just stuck at home? Or what does that look like for you right now? No, I think we're legally allowed to go, but we got a 14-day quarantine coming back. So it's tough. Like I was on a plane six or eight months out of the year last year, every couple of weeks, Houston, Pittsburgh, all these places all the time. And I haven't been on a plane since. March. Wow. But yeah, it's a different pace for sure. But I don't hate the ability to do like eight or nine Zoom calls a day and kind of really productivity's gone through the roof in that sense. Yeah. No, that's interesting actually. Cause I mean, similarly to you, I used to travel quite a bit, maybe not quite as much as you, but at least once a month, whether it was Denver, Midland, Oklahoma City. But yeah, now I just feel like the productivity has gone up. But the thing with our business, I mean, oil and gas is such a people's business, not having that human interaction. I think it's hard to build that strategic density within a relationship, but you can certainly, the volume of meetings you can have right now is amazing. And so thank goodness for technology. I mean, here we are today being able to get on a podcast and ultimately deliver what you can through technology, but hopefully things get lifted. I mean, this winter is going to be crazy, but I'm certainly anxious to get back to normal to be able to start flying around. Actually, I flew twice now. I flew to Midland a couple of weeks ago and then Denver before that. And traveling is, it's pretty smooth sailing right now. I got to say, because before is 
it took forever to get somewhere. And now it's almost like if you ever traveled, like, you know, the red eye, there's no one in the hotel, there's nobody in the airports, planes are not there full. And so it, it's traveling right now is actually not that bad, but either way, it's still, you know, we need more people to travel and we need the demand for oil to keep going up. So anyway, so Brett, you know, so I took a look at your profile and I always try and do a little due diligence before, you know, getting on and, and you have a really unique story. So I'd like to, you know, for you to take the stage and, and really just kind of give the listeners, you know, where you're from, where you grew up and how you ultimately became, you know, someone who's been featured on Forbes, you're crushing it with the company Coldboard Technology. So I'll just let you kind of, yeah, like I said, take the stage and just tell us where you're from and, and the journey that you're on right now. Sure. Yeah, I appreciate it. So I think I started similar to a lot of people that we run into in the boardrooms nowadays. I dropped out. Well, I finished high school-ish. <laughs> and then I'm not sure I actually got a diploma, but I went there and I showed up to the last day. So then I went to art school in Vancouver. I got accepted to an Emily Carr program, which is like, it's a really good art school in Canada. And I was painting pictures for a couple of years, mostly just screwing around. And then really soon figured out I better go get a real job. So I quit, went straight to the patch in the early 2000s. And I don't know what I was thinking, or I think I just didn't understand what I was getting into, but I started fast holing in Saskatchewan, drilling 800 meter wells on a little single. Oh yeah. That's fast. <laughs> much, That's yeah. It's like you have one nostril above water the whole time. It's just go, go, go. Yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. So it's like the worst work on earth. Cause you're doing two holes a day, two rig ups a day, two, like two full. It's crazy. I think I'd lose like 30 pounds every time I go back to work and then put it back on laying on my couch <laughs> for a week. Yeah. But yeah, did that and then got on, we were at Technicoil doing that with that company. And then when Extreme Drilling started, I was the second man at that company and joined their management team and building their 300s and their 400s. So they were coil top drive hybrids. This was have been like 2004-ish, 2005, probably, if my memory is serving me right. But yeah, I mean, that was back when we thought that coil was going to be the answer to connectionless drilling. And so, you know, they were all the rage and everything. And then horizontal just got way too long and coils too heavy, too expensive, all the rest of it. So they were good. SLB ended up acquiring those assets just recently over in Saudi. So a lot of those rigs went down to Poza Rica and Mexico and then over to the Saudi project to do coil work over there. So that was my like first foray into building rigs and doing technology implementation. And then did that for a few years and got right out of the patch and then joined a group of entrepreneurs here in Calgary. And they were pretty much tech specialized. So they were more like software, hardware, and finance. It was kind of an interesting mix. And really what I wanted to learn there is a couple of the guys I worked with. And one of them actually was my uncle, Cam, who's had a lot of success and been very public in, in terms of building technology companies over the years. And what I wanted to learn from him was how to finance these tech companies so I could build a real business and not end up getting you know, taken from me. Yeah. Yeah. So he taught us uh, step financing. I worked with them and his group for five years and a lot of really smart people. And they teach you how to do the one, two, five, you know, million, you know, seed to A round or B round, and then have a strategic come in, you know, you find a Halliburton or an SLB or one of these guys, if you've got a tech company in oil and gas and facilitate that strategic transaction and, you know, do that kind of stuff. And mm. so that was five years worth of work, 2010 to 2000. 14 or 15, we did some cool stuff. We flew a Volkswagen bus size video camera on a Russian Soyuz rocket and installed it on the International Space Station. So <laughs> that was, yeah, that was one of the companies called Earthcast. We, we built a company, we secured a deal with a McDonald's Detweiler 
anyway, it was to provide video, live video back for forestry and ministries and all stuff like that. Crazy. Yeah. So I got to work with a lot of smart guys, way smarter than me doing all that kind of, all kinds of stuff like that. And then I just kind of branched out on my own after that and started Cold Bore in 2014. And then 2015 got involved in a company called Raptor Rig as well, which recently <laughs> we just got smoked on that deal, but that's okay. That's a whole different story. But Cold Bore, I run day to day operationally, and it's been a lot of fun. We've been through three downturns, a pandemic, two oil wars, and now we're here with a technology platform and some opportunity with really cool guys like John and FMC. You're so right. We're excited. So before we, because I know there's a lot of talk about on that, but where did the idea come from Cold Bore Technologies? And it was it something that were you scratching your own itch or, or really what was a pivotal moment that sort of made you decide, you know what, like this is where I'm going and, and I'm all in with this. Like, can you just talk a little bit about that? Sure. When Cold Bore first started, my partner and I, we were both drilling guys, right? We had drilling background six, seven years ago. And so we were working on acoustic telemetry. We were going to solve the telemetry problem you know, Mud Pulse and EM were kind of outdated and both were slow. And we have these new, all these tools downhole that need much faster communication between the rig and the bit. So we built the tool, we got it, we were burst in 150, 200 bits a second. It was like the big thing. We were flying over the Middle East to meet with a bunch of big players. And then 2015 happened, end of 2015, 2016. And it was over. Like no one was drilling and no one cared about anything drilling. And that was really when we made the decision. I'm like, we got to pivot this company out of drilling and we got to take whatever software we have and move it over to completions. And so the acoustic part of that tool, we went to completions and we're listening for ball drop frack, all the events in ball drop. Yeah. Like the sleeve shifting, the ball landing, we just repurposed it. We lost a lot of our board. A lot of our partners quit. They were all like, oh, this is terrible. You know, bad time to shift. Well, so we just bootstrap refinance and did that. And that was when the aha moment came. We were on the pad with a, a major operator running this ball drop tool, acquiring a ton of acoustic data. Mm. And being a drilling guy, I had run drilling rigs my whole life and EDRs like, you know, NOVs and PASONs and all that, electronic drilling recorders. Yeah. And so I had the concept in my mind of a centralized operating system on the drilling rig that would take in all your data, display what you need and database the rest. And when we got onto the frack pad, I was like, yo, I know that you guys, you know, this is a useful that we're telling you what to do on the fly. Like if that ball didn't land or something, but we have a quarter terabyte a day of data. You need to store this and compare it against all of your other correlated data from all these services. And I just assumed that that existed. I'm like, where is your central, your centralized operating system? And every pad I went to, I was, every time they're like, well, we don't have that. Hmm. I'm like, or, or the answer was go talk to the frack guys. Yeah. I'm like, huh. well, hold on here. The frack guys are one of like six services on location. Right. Where is your control system that you plug everyone into and run the job from? And that was where the concept for SmartPad came from. Wow. Huh. Yeah, because it would seem something so obvious, but obviously no one took the plunge to actually make something like that to come to fruition or you know even take it on, which in what year was that roughly? That was probably five years ago now. So pretty recent. So, wow, that's crazy, man. So I'm going to sh shift over to John now. So John, we've already had you on the show, but your role has changed since back then. Cause I think you used to be VP of integrated upstream unconventional. And so you've shifted roles. What keeps you busy nowadays, bud? Well, it's kind of fun. So I lead the sales organization now and from a product launch standpoint, we had launched Frack now when I was in the integrated upstream role. 
and we kind of formulated what the value prop was and, and tied it together commercially. And now I have the opportunity to actually bring it to market rather than kind of staying in the background of it. Mm. So it's real, it's unique, it's fun. It's the next iteration. We are now launching iComplete and iComplete has a little more intuitiveness than the frack now that we reviewed last time. Okay. And cold bore is instrumental part of, of what the next evolution is. Okay. Well, and that's, so for the listeners out there, that's one of the reasons, you know, I wanted to have both of you gentlemen on the show was to highlight and just create awareness around your strategic alliance within iComplete. And so you've kind of, you know, vaguely described it, but, you know, I'd like to, you know, hear more about what it is and how it actually adds value to the marketplace. And, and what, you know, for someone who may have not been familiar with Frack now, kind of the, you know, a general scope of work of, of what it actually does. I mean, cause there's, I have listeners that are, you know, drilling engineers, salesmen, geologists, reservoir finance. So if you could somehow kind of bridge the gap and, and really just give a good sort of high level explanation as to what it what it is and and why, you know, it could be revolutionary for you guys. And either one of you can can let her rip. Yeah, so I'll give you the background on what Frack Now was. So Frack Now was the hardware from four completions from fluid end to casing. And it's technologically advanced it's i mean it incorporates flexibles it incorporates connector systems that we've pulled from subsea it's a very robust ecosystem for pressure control what i complete is taking that associating automation and controls throughout the entire system and giving actionable commands to manipulate valve operation and you know introduces more data the problem with, with the end goal, right? The end goal is autonomous frack, right? We don't want, there's no reason for people to participate in, in frack, really. Outside of pump maintenance and some other things that are a little far-fetched to eliminate thus far. But in order to do so, we need to connect to all those other services. And that's where Brett comes in. From a pressure control standpoint, I don't have enough visibility to the overall path to automate it. I can automate all the controls, but I need to, I need that visibility and I need a viable data source to tell me when things should happen and a data source that I can tell when it has occurred. Crazy. Okay. And so like something like this really has just hasn't existed in the past, has it? No. There's people that have, that have automated like pressure testing, but I mean, pressure testing is a five to 15 minute event that is, you know, there's not a whole lot of variation. A frack stage, there's tremendous variation, and we need to be able to, you know, move on the fly and and give the end user customer, you know, the best experience. Ultimately, we we want to be the Garmin of fracturing, where if there's a detour, we can articulate where that detour is, and do it autonomously. Interesting. What typically has been the issue with completions largely is. I mean, what the operators thought the issue was three or four years ago was they didn't have visibility to their pad, right? And so they were asking for analytic platforms. Somebody connect and bring me back the raw data from services. What the real problem was is that operators had six companies doing one job. And so they have six companies, they have six formats, they have six timestamps, and they have six opinions of what happened. <laughs> right. And they're trying to bring that all together. They're then recording a timestamp manually themselves that is the workflow that you know, most of the times a human doing it, the really good ones are trying to get it to the you know five minute or minute. But again, it's a person gathering this. 
And so they're trying to take all the other six opinions and six raw data sets, which is a ton of data and put it in the framework of that workflow, make it make sense. And then they got to, you know, have a negotiation with six different people about if that's right or wrong. You can just imagine that's the real issue. And the connectivity to autonomous frack, which John's talking about, is where digital leaders like FMC start to partner with us and we're accelerating past even solving this core problem, which which we've solved for a lot of our clients individually at Cobor. So the genesis of Cobor, and we're the only company in the world that's doing this, and we have the IP around it, so our patent is centered around, we realize that the common timestamp and formatting all this completion data is the key, right? And there's only one way to do that. You can't make a format out of thin air and try to get all these companies to adopt it. I mean, you're talking about Chevron and FMC, like these guys are huge. You can't just redo your whole business and everyone's going to be in sync and they're all going to update at the same time. Like it's right. never going to happen. So you're kind of a chicken in the, you're in a hard rock and a hard place there. Right? So what we looked at, we said, look at the middle of this location. All these fractures are, are analog for the most part. So we threw valve sensors and pressure sensors, four or five of each on each factory that allowed us to write an algorithm to track the workflow off those fractures. So instead of everyone capturing their own timestamps essentially and having an opinion, we just digitized the heart of the operation and said, hey, this is unbiased, one second accurate sensor-based workflow. Can we all just share this? Hmm. Yeah, we wow. can. So now you got a common timestamp and you've created a new data set that never existed. Right. That new data set that's Colbor, that Colbor owns houses a format. So then we just put a hard uh, edge server out there, hardline everybody in, all the services. And at that point, we ingest all the raw data from frac, coil, wireline, pump down. And we drop it into that format. So now the whole location is time synced and formatted. And then we send it up to the cloud and everyone in, anywhere in the world on their phones, on computers can access it in the cloud, see and control their whole operation from one operating system. Wow. So that, that's where we start to talk like really digital forward people like FMC. They realize real quickly when we talk, they're like, oh man, this is the central nervous system element that we've been missing. You know, FMC is a huge player on that location. They got all the equipment, the control systems, and then the other service companies have their own control systems as well, but none of them are connected. Right. So there is a lot of automation on location, but it doesn't communicate until we show up. And all of a sudden you put that last Lego piece in, you write some logic like a green or go stop. And you're now actually writing code for fully autonomous frack to take place like in the next six to 12 months. What? And that's where, six to 12 months. We're, we're, we're with one of our clients, EQT, who's a, a top, top client of ours. They're super digital forward. They want the first instance-based signal sent, generated from our system with pressure bumpers that we're working with that's going to go to John's equipment. John's equipment's going to receive and it's going to actuate valves based on an instance with no human input. That's the first iterative step. Wow. Dude, that's crazy. So let me ask you, I mean, this could obviously, this is something, a question that I've asked a lot of people is if you look at just like other markets and other industries, you know, you have Uber that revolutionized transportation, you had Airbnb that revolutionized the way we basically travel and and vacation. You have, you know, things like, you know, DoorDash revolutionized the way we, you know, get our food for lack of better terms. Like, could this potentially be that impactful for oil and gas? 100%. Wow. I mean, if you look at, listen, fracturing in general is a capital intensive, you know, play, but the majority of your cost on location is people, right? Your frac crews got 
you know, eight equipment operators per shift. Your pressure control, depending on how it's divided, can have, you know, three more people per shift. Most EMPs have, you know, two company men because they need one to record data and then they need the other one to supervise. When you get to autonomous track, your labor intensive portion becomes pump maintenance, right? And that's only because we're probably at the technical threshold of a, of a positive displacement pump. And someone probably working on it, probably Technique FMC, is looking at developing a different pump where that, the technical threshold for maintenance is, is significantly bigger. But yeah, I, you have a lot of people on a, on a completions location. And with the foresight that Coldbore and Technique FMC have, I don't think it's a, a requirement going forward. And I'm sure Brett would agree. I think John nailed it. Yeah, the reduction of infrastructure, the improvement, the automation, I mean, the improvement automation brings the obvious ones are massive efficiency gains. Like you're talking on the orders of 10, 20% when you add all the different silos that you're going to pick up time on. Safety is a big increase, but infrastructure reduction is one of the big goals here, right? Repeatability and adopting best practices, but understanding which best practice to adopt in a very high resolution is also a big part of this, right? right. And so... The frack of the past, and what John is alluding to, like up here in Canada, we get these big plants, right? That are, they're the size of small cities with thousands of pumps and pipes and everything all over the place. Those things are run by two guys because they're connected with an IO, integrated operating system. They're all run by computers. Now, the difference in a frack location is not the iron. Like it's all, the elements are still the same, pumps, pipes, fluid, all the same stuff, but it's mobile and different companies own it. It breaks up and it leaves and then it comes back together. So you need to have a operating system or a connective tissue like us that can adapt to that and potentially have different pieces switch in and out. And when we form a partnership with someone like FMC, the equipment is the critical piece that shows up first and you're pumping through, right? That has its own control system. When we connect the smart pad to that, you now have the connective tissue that you need to attach everybody else to it, right? And so we're now talking actively with pressure pumping companies so the, the frack of the past was that it was really focused on the op itself, right? Everyone show up and you do your best job and however you collect your data is however you collect it and you send it into the operator and that's whatever. We'll do what we can with it. That's over, right? The services need, they're looking for a way to differentiate themselves strategically. And that's going to come from the only thing that's non-commoditized right now in services is data. And so you're going to drive efficiency for that operator. That's how you're going to differentiate yourself. So the frack of the future, the frack of now and the future is not so much focused on just the operation itself, although that's obviously critical, but it's when everyone shows up on location, are you connected to our central operating system, which is SmartPad, right? Like get connected. I need to make sure I can see you. I need to make sure your data is formatted and we're collecting it autonomously. Once we do that, we flip the lights on now, run your operation and everybody use all this data. That's now, it's not just for the operator SmartPad, all the service companies we can combine all the data, we pull it all together and you're seeing your data if you're a frack or if you're equipment or wireline in the context of all of the rest of the operation. So you start to see what's coming at you, what's going behind you, how, okay, I get prepared for this. I'm up next, right? And you start running that. So this is really what's exciting about working with a company with the scale and technical prowess of FMC. Cobalt, completely agnostic company. We work with everybody. That's the value. We connect yep. to every equipment. We connect to all the pumpers. FMC has just kind of come out at the front of this and said, you know, they get it. They're like, let's be connected. Let's be autonomous. And it's a pleasure to work with these guys, to be honest.
Yeah, no, no kidding. It sounds like you're, you guys have, I mean, it sounds like you're on a, on a rocket ship, to be honest with you. I mean, just the way that, you know, things are advancing in the plans forward. And like you said, you know, within the near future, you know, seeing fully autonomous fracking, but what would you say the biggest limiter is, or that could be potentially coming up for whether it's Cold War or, or the I complete, I mean, because certainly, you know, as things develop, as things evolve, and as you disrupt industry, there's always challenges, there's limiters that you have to overcome. I mean, do you anticipate there being anything? And, and if so, how do you plan on adapting or overcoming that kind of stuff? Go ahead, John. I'll let you go first. Yeah. So I think the limitation is going to be lack of overall industry foresight. But I do believe that the value is unignorable. Mm-hmm. There's so much value that that you can't ignore it and, and each operator is going to have to do their, do their due diligence. I think that it, the way this reflects commercially is a benefit to all parties, but it's like I said before, when we were, when we were chatting, Justin, I don't think people believe this is possible in the timelines that we're talking about. I think everybody acknowledges that automation exists everywhere. But to Brett's point about having an EDR on completions, I mean, five years ago, it didn't exist. And today, it only exists in a slight few. So I think as long as people accept that it's possible, we won't have an overwhelming resistance to change, I don't believe. But it is, you have to have foresight and you have to be innovative. We'll have some early adopters that'll push it. Right. Some of our, our key partners are obviously well aware of this partnership already and and are are moving forward with it. So I think that as the market sees them do it and they they outpace their competitors, we'll get other adoption. Yeah, I think from what I'm seeing and working on a but like the, the really great advantage that Colbor has is that we work with a lot of you know, almost all the service companies in the industry right now on a bunch of different pads with a bunch of different operators that have a wide array of operations and you kind of see everything when you're out there. So what I think I'm going to, we're going to see is the limitation here real soon because we're moving to one second accurate automated time tracking. What happens is the first, the operators and then the service companies, they cease to have to spend so much time and effort doing that action. Mm-hmm. And so the first advantage is you move from like a one minute or five minute human gathered understanding to a one second sensor gathered understanding, but you also are not spending time doing it. So all of a sudden you have that, that many more eyes on the operation that are being creative, they're coming up with ways to run this and they're using the data to improve the operation. So what we've already seen on pads is we're seeing like 22 and a half hours pumping and we're talking about like real pumping, like treating pressure, right? And, yeah. and it's, it's gonna run, the limit is gonna hit for the maintenance of the pumps. Now they're like John said, those guys are on it. They know it's coming, but because we're moving to such a high resolution system, they're going to just have to implement maintenance plans that switches pumps off and on to, I mean, the ultimate goal first is get 24 hours pumping. We want 24 hours treating pressure. That's, right. that's a realistic goal now because we're tracking it so carefully. We'll find a way to get it there. And so once we get the pump maintenance thing figured out, we'll, we'll do that. And then we're going to turn our attention to the efficiency of that 24 hours. Mm-hmm. You might have 13 stages in that 24 hours. We're going to get it to 16, right? right. And it's, there's a whole bunch of metrics here that you just, we're going to drive the efficiency and the amount of the, the amount of change that's going to happen in this is going to come so fast and so hard because 
this is not, you know, something that you need to really convince people on in terms of like, Hey, believe us, look what we're, this is going to be awesome in the future. We have the data to back it up. Now we can show incremental increases. Like our video releases of parsley and EQT, they're having record, record quarters of picking up efficiencies and saving money. Now that's going to get exponential as we connect all this. Like we're, we just, we're about to announce our formal partnership with Amazon as well. AWS energy. What? Yeah. So they've, we're Cobor's pulling this in. And what we want to do as a small company is bring these big companies together. Like we need to add value to John. You know, it's obvious the FMC value add, we need to add value back to the rest of these big companies like Amazon and FMC, the pressure pumpers we're talking to. I don't want to see any names yet, but yeah, we got a formal partnership with AWS that we're going to bring to the table. So we're moving data, capturing it autonomously from a frack operation that's going to move through their business automatically and database and to the cloud and analytics without anyone touching this. You just got systems running. Mm -hmm. So the exponential growth factor backed by data, I think is what's, you know, the market is crying for this automation shift now. Right. And when we don't have a choice, <laughs> we have yeah. to. No, exactly. I think we're going to see, typically I've been in oil and gas for 20 years. We all know there. this is a really hard industry to affect changing. Mm -hmm. You just don't want to adopt or change. There's not really a choice. And it's being presented in, at such a magnitude with what everything's happening right now. It's literally taking, you know, it's a Netflix wiping out Blockbuster in terms of a model. Yeah. And I think we've been longing for that. And now I think, you know, between having a crisis of balance sheets, demand destruction due to coronavirus, as an industry, our backs against the wall. We need something like this to, to help propel us forward because we certainly are faced with several challenges. And, and hopefully guys like yourselves and, and the partnerships and the people that you're working with can help overcome this hurdle and continue to add value to energy, you know, around the world. So for Colbor, where do you see, you know, in five years from now, where do you see yourselves? I mean, I know that's a long ways away and you probably have a lot of st stuff in the pipeline, but I mean, what's the ultimate goal for, for Colbor? I mean, where do you see yourselves in the future? So the, obviously the goal for us is strategic partnerships platform. So we're calling it universal completions platform. And that's really all we're there for, right? We're there as the operating system to be shared by everyone on location. Right. It's the only way to do this because everyone can still use their own control systems, their own screens in the frack van, the wireline. They're running their own jobs. We're ingesting, formatting, and duplicating screens for use for anyone else that doesn't want to use that one or needs to see the same data as you, but in a slightly different way. Sure. Right? Because the operator needs to see it from an operational perspective. But the frack guys, they want to communicate on the same data set, but they need to see a different type of data display. Right. So... That's where I see us in five years as this, you know, kind of de facto universal operating system that's just there to connect all of the services with the oil and gas companies. So like, let's say you take over the frack game, things are going well. Is this something that you could deploy in other industries? I mean, can you branch out or are you kind of, you know, focused just on oil and gas? Like, I know that's a very down the line thought, but I mean, does this type of technology or ability as it add value in other industries? We're squarely focused on completions. This is a big beast. Of course. This is, but yeah, you know what? That's going to take probably smarter guys than me. It's The guys at Amazon did bring it up though. They already said, hey, 
when we get in here and we get into these meetings, we got plans for other industries. So hey, shoot for we'll the, moon, what the smart guys have to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Right on. Well, I want to respect your guys' time, but Brett, one thing I always do towards the end of the show here is I always like to ask a couple of questions more on the personal side, just to kind of get to know a little bit more about the guy behind the, the mic here. So as a CEO or, you know, as someone who's like basically runs a company, you're obviously extremely busy. I don't know how you sleep at night with all the stuff you got going on and how exciting things are for you, but do you have any daily habits or routines that contribute to your success and help you sort of disconnect and recharge? Because obviously the level of energy that you have and it shows right now, I mean, it's sustainable for a certain amount of time, but do you have anything daily that kind of really keeps you zoned in and and helps you manage everything? Oh man. Yeah. It's, I think it's pretty, you know, pretty common stuff. I got to, I really have to put a lot of effort into getting up at, at 5 a.m. and going for my swim or my rope or my boxing or whatever it is in the morning. Yeah. I need to stay on that so that it puts me to bed by 10 or 11. I really found that with Corona and all this stuff, you can sit here for 10 hours a day and you do. So you book back to back and <laughs> yeah. you just get so much stuff done. But man, you're sitting, you're literally sitting for 10 hours a day. Like, yeah. So, Got to get up and move. And that's my big thing right now. I live really close to the mountains. So I'm big into being gone and I unplug on the weekends. I spend a lot of time in the back country, way deep into with my sled and my, my buddies kind of hanging out in the back country. So that's my all winter program. Yeah. Something I got to get you and John up here to do with me. I'll take the Texas boys out and freeze them up. Hey, I miss sledding, man. Like I told you before, I grew up in BC. So I grew up on the mountains and on the lakes on a board for the most part. And so, you know, buddies still, I, I see, you know, all their social media, my buddies sledding and, you know, up in Revelstoke and all over the mountains there. And it's something I miss. So the, the next opportunity I get to come back to the mountains, buddy, I'm certainly in. And so one other question is, is there something, and I was actually going to mention it because this is, this doesn't get released over video, but is there something about you that not many people know about, or you got any sort of like unique hobbies and stuff like that? And the first thing that comes to mind is like, obviously, you know, you, you love art and, you know, I can identify with you on, on, you know, having some sleeves and actually I was going to bring it up. The first sleeve I got was at strange world up there in Calgary with regards to tattoos. And I just think that's unique, you know, especially in our industry, typically more conservative, but, you know, aside from obviously loving, you know, art and inking, is there anything else that kind of comes to mind that's unique to you and what you do? I mean, the art thing, yeah, it's, it's, I'm a professional artist as well. I just didn't, haven't had a lot of time to focus on it, but I got a website and I sell art into the States. I usually do 10 or 15 pieces a year. I got collectors kind of all over the place down there. So I started with graffiti art back when okay. I was a hooligan and just graffiti <laughs> and stuff. And now I put it on canvases and sell it. So that's why I'm all covered in tattoos. Yeah. A lot of it is important to me, but a lot of it is aesthetic and yeah. Just kind of doing my thing mixed. It's a weird mix. Yeah. Hey, you know what? It's hey, you got to be you. And, and that's the unique thing about it, man. I love it. But John, what about you? Is there anything kind of, I'm going to shut her down here. I know you boys are busy, but anything else that you'd like to relate to, you know, to everybody listening, anything unique or anything you've done lately that needs to be highlighted? Oh, I think that this conversation and, and these things are, are what the industry needs. One thing I got to say that I'm extremely proud of Technip FMC and our ability to maintain flexibility. And, and I think that usually big companies struggle to make partnerships rather than trying to do it themselves. And I think that our industry absolutely needs to get off of our high horse a little bit and use existing technology and adopt it rather than trying to do this, this organic growth of technology that takes too long, right? We're all in a sprint. 
And I'm glad that Technique FMC has recognized that. And we've joined the sprint instead of trying to run the marathon. Right. No, that's awesome. Well, gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure. And for Brett, if people want to get to know more about your company or yourself, what's the best way for people to reach out? Yeah, LinkedIn, Brett Chell or coldboretechnology.com. You guys can find our info email there. Yeah. Perfect. Well, I'll make sure and put the link in the show notes. And John, I'll put your link in there as well, along with Technique FMC's website. And gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. I'm excited to see how things progress. And for everyone out there, always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN. And here are the events on deck for October 2020. We've got about five events this month, three of which are online, one of which is in person, and one of which is both. First up, we have the Houston Energy Breakfast Virtual Conference on the 6th, which is about embracing the evolving market landscape, and that'll be online. Second, we have Adipec 2020, which is an interactive online event going on from the 9th to the 12th. Third, we have OGGN and API Houston Chapter Presents, the opening of the Deep Cavango Basin, which will be live streamed directly to LinkedIn and other platforms from the event in downtown Houston on the 10th. Fourth, we have the Energy API Three Gun Challenge on the 13th, which is in person at the Ranch Shooting Club in Eagle Lake, Texas. Last, we have the Downstream Leadership Forum, which will be our last event of the month from the 19th to the 20th, and that'll be online. Other than these events, I believe OGGN will be hosting some live streams this month, so make sure to check out our Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website for more information about any of the live streams we have coming up. That's all for November. I hope you guys have a great month, and thanks for tuning in. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.